Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this uh, new episode of Political Economy this week with Asad Ijaz Bhatt on New Wave Global. I have with me uh, Mellon Professor of uh, American History at the University of Cambridge, Dr. Gary Gerstel. Let's let's welcome Dr. Gerstel. Thank you, Professor, for joining. Nice to be here with you. Uh, first, I'll start with a with a very straightforward question. You know, you uh, your book came out on the rise and fall of uh, neoliberalism, and that book made the made, made the rounds, and you know, it sort of uh, created a lot of buzz around neoliberalism. Of course, it's also a, a a very pertinent subject in the West right now, and you know, the the extent you know the debates are uh, regarding uh, the extent to which the uh, there must be freedom in the society and you know the the extent to which there should be or should not be government regulations uh so you know we'd be discussing all of this all of those things today but i wanted to start with a very straightforward question how how do you define neoliberalism because in, in south asia there are a lot of sort of disagreements about what the neoliberal order is and you know what part of that should be adopted by countries in south asia so you know it would be good, nice to start with clarity on what neoliberalism is and how you define it. Well, there are um, multiple definitions of neoliberalism. I think the best thing to do is to start with a simple and straightforward definition, and then we can complicate it in various ways if if you wish to, if and if your listeners would like to hear some of the complexities. Uh, Basically, neoliberalism is a creed that wants to unleash capitalism's power and to free markets from constraints. Uh, it's a creed that believes that markets left to their own devices can produce the greatest economic growth and thus the greatest economic good. Wants to remove the state from interference with markets. There is a role for the state in neoliberalism, but really to enhance the performance of markets not to regulate them in some larger public interest. It's a creed that prizes the free movement of capital, goods, people, and information across national borders. And once we include the phrase across national borders, it becomes clear that neoliberalism aspires to be a global project and not just a national project. And for neoliberalism to to really be successful, it has to triumph. It needs to triumph in the world. It doesn't do neoliberalism much good if it's constrained to one country or two. Uh, the supporters of neoliberalism will acknowledge that inequality is likely to deepen under a neoliberal regime, but that the degree of economic growth unleashed by neoliberalism will would be so great that all all boats would rise and if all boats are rising then the gap between the rich and poor will not be of concern to many Th that at least is the is the ideology i think that's not how it's worked out but uh, that's central to the ideology so think of neoliberalism as a as a creed that seeks to free capitalism from constraints in the belief that the release of capitalism is going to generate the greatest economic growth uh, and will be the greatest benefit for humankind. Thank you, Professor, for an elaborate answer. So uh, thinking about uh, the government's role, of course, you uh, just talked about it. 
You know, one opinion on that is that the government's role must be limited to policy, while the delivery of services should then be left to the private sector. And that's, you know, one opinion uh, that's often talked about here in Pakistan, where I sit right now. Uh, do you really think that when you talk about neoliberal or, or does neoliberalism really carve out that role for the government, which is to, you know, define or lay out the policy at the highest level? And then, you know, the service delivery institutions, which are mostly private firms, then really sort of uh, take care of the delivery of services like health, education for the public. Do you think there's a role for the government? Uh, I, I think there is. Uh, now, the, the the people who call themselves neoliberals and many of the people who write about neoliberalism think that what is new about neoliberalism is that the government is involved in helping to sustain and invigorate markets, create the the ground rules for market operation, which is another way of saying what, what you just said. And that that distinguishes neoliberalism for from classical liberalism of the 19th century, yeah. the assumption being that classical liberalism of the 19th century, markets just sprang naturally from human behavior. The Adam Smith's favorite um, famous phrase, uh, if people are left to their own devices, they will truck barter and exchange with each other. It's, it's natural for human beings to engage in commerce. Markets simply spring out of the ground and what neoliberals claim for themselves, what their innovation was in the 20th century, was that, well, no, markets don't really spring um, naturally. They always have to be organized. Uh, they have to be governed by law. Uh, governments have to ensure they're uh, running smoothly. Uh, my critique of that view is that uh, classical liberalism itself never sprang spontaneously from the ground. You can't have effective markets without regimes of law, some kind of government supervision. So yes, I would agree that uh, government involvement in terms of setting up the terms under which markets will operate uh, is crucial to the success of neoliberalism. It's also crucial to the success of the original classical form of liberalism. So there is a role for government, uh, but the idea is that the role of government is limited to uh, establishing the frameworks in, under which markets will operate. And then the actual delivery of services is, as you suggest, left to private actors. Professor, uh, you talked about uh, the early 20th century and uh, classical liberalism. We saw what happened in the U.S. Of course, uh, I think your uh, research also... Uh, sort of points towards um, the history of neoliberalism. Uh, so the 1930s financial crisis, stock market crisis happens in the US. And then um, the ideas of, I'm, a I'm, I'm an economist by training, so I'll just put some of those uh, uh, facts before you. Um, John Maynard Keynes' theories are really popularized and most of his theories uh, carved a very strong role for the government. In fact, the uh, you know, uh, neoliberals who were later branded as neoliberals, people like Milton Friedman were greatly opposed to what Keynes was saying at the time. And we saw that the order of the day, the economic order of the day, especially in the US, was really based on uh, the works and theories of Maynard Keynes. He was termed as the crisis economist because his theory on aggregate demand, you know, using aggregate demand as an instrument to 
uh, bring economies out of um, a deflationary sort of or recessionary crisis uh, became really popular. Uh, what, where do you think, uh, you know, and by 1950s, we saw when the Cold War started, the West was uh, was on the neoliberal uh, side. And then, of course, uh, uh, there was this, uh, the Soviet bloc, which, uh, you know, carved a great, great role for the government, centralized planning and so on and so forth. So where do you think this, you know, this transition took place in the US when they shifted away from what Keynes was telling them to a more sort of neoliberal state outlook? Uh, the U.S. had a long Keynesian moment. We might call it a Keynesian yeah. political order. I, I, I call it by the term it was that was used in the U.S., the New Deal yeah. order. And uh, the principle of the New Deal order was the opposite of the neoliberal order. The principle of the New Deal order, yeah. or think of it as a Keynesian order, uh, was that capitalism freed from constraints was disastrous, catastrophic. It was a tremendous engine of, of growth and generation of wealth. But it inevitably uh, led to crises of uh, production, the inability to balance production and consumption, leading to a intensifying boom and bust cycle. And the 1930s remains the greatest economic crisis of capitalism that the United States has ever undergone, the longest and deepest depression beginning in 1929 and not over until 1941 and really not over until the conclusion of World War II. And so the response of policymakers in the U.S., this is Franklin Roosevelt, they anticipated Keynes in some ways. They were operating from the Keynes rulebook before the Keynes rulebook had officially been published, was to carve out a very strong role uh, for the state to manage capitalism in the public interest, to impose a, a very sharp regulatory regime. And this becomes true of Europe uh, after uh, uh, World War II. Uh, there it was called social democracy. The New Deal in America is really a, the American the, the American version of social democracy. Uh, and this uh, regime believed that strong states were necessary to allow capitalism to be regulated and disciplined to increase the greatest good of the greatest number of people. And indeed, in the United States, the heyday of this Keynesian political order, the New Deal political order, uh, the 1950s and 60s, uh, achieved the narrowest gap between rich and poor in American society that had ever been achieved in the last 100 to 150 years, indeed distributed the fruits of capital to a much greater public created a very large and prosperous uh, middle class. And this governed politics in America, both the Democratic and the Republican Party in the 1950s, in the 1960s, into the early 1970s. And then in the early 1970s, there are two profound economic developments that um, throw the Keynesian uh, framework into crisis. Uh, the first is the um, recovery of other industrial countries in the world from the devastation of World War II. Uh, the U.S. industrial economy after World War II was the only one that was really intact as a result of the devastation and catastrophe of the war itself. And so for 20 or 30 years, American industrialist manufacturers had pretty much the world to themselves, and they did not have serious competitors outside 
of the United States. And that changes dramatically in the 1970s with the reemergence of Japan and Germany as major, major international competitors. Uh, and uh, the American economy had, go had gotten soft for the lack of competition uh, and was not prepared for these international challenges. Uh, the other major development of the 1970s was a rearrangement of relations between the global north and the and the, and the global south. The 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 Keynesianism, the social democracy of the global north, was founded on the principle of cheap energy, endless supplies of cheap energy, fossil fuel, petroleum, and the endless supplies of cheap energy uh, were dependent on Anglo-American petroleum companies controlling the uh, uh, the uh, drilling for oil in the Middle East and determining how much oil would be drilled, at what price it would be sold, completely in the, in the interest of the economies in the global north. Uh, OPEC had been formed in 1960, but it doesn't really strike hard at this arrangement until the 1970s, and it happens in the wake of the uh, Arab-Israeli War of 1973. Uh, where the U.S. sides with Israel, the Soviet Union is siding with the Arab countries, and Saudi Arabia, when it sees what side the United States is on, stops the delivery of oil to the West. And this throws the um, economies of the global north into crisis. And the United States, the crisis is even more intense because it's dealing not just with this challenge from the global south, but also for, because of the renewed competition within the industrial countries of the global north. And while the boycott or the embargo on sending oil has ended pretty quickly, the terms of exchange changed dramatically and in enduring ways so that Saudi Arabia and other countries in the Middle East and then Iran in the, in the late 70s um, with the deposing of the Shah, uh, it, that has the effect of dramatically rearranging relations between commodity producers in the global south and the consumers of, of those commodities in the global north. And the economies of the global north are not prepared for the dramatic escalation in prices that ensue. And so suddenly the Keynesian toolkit, which had been so effective, is no longer effective. The economy of the United States is thrown into pretty profound crisis, not at the level of the 1930s, but still pretty serious. And this creates the opening for another toolkit, another point of view. Uh, this, these are the neoliberals. This gives them their shot. They begin to say the problems of the American economy is that it's too overregulated. We've got to free the animal spirits of capitalism, free it from public state control. So this gives the neoliberals their shot and marks the beginning of the rise of a new ideology and a new political order with Ronald Reagan as the architect in the 1980s, and then it triumphs after the fall of communism in the Soviet Union in the 1990s. You've, uh, you thank you so much. You've gone over 40 years uh, <laughs> in less than three minutes. So I think that that's, I, I think <laughs> that's a great, um, history lesson for uh, my audience. Thank you so much. But uh, Professor, I'll, um, I'll take you back to the to the to the fifties again. And do you do you do you really think that, uh, you know, this major shift from um, 
uh, Keynesianism to, uh, you know, a more neoliberal sort of political order happened just because if I've understood you correctly. So if you if one would like to wrap it in one sentence, do you think that it was just, you know, the sort of the impetus uh, and of course the opportunity to, you know, to sort of economically take over the, you know, the uh, the entire opportunity that was presented by World War II, given that there was no competition. Do you think that these two things were chiefly responsible for the American shift towards neoliberalism after World War II? Is that what is that what you'd like to, uh, you know, agree with? Uh, no, I think the um, I would frame it as somewhat differently. I I, I think uh, World War Two in the first instance made possible the triumph of a Keynesian political order, heavy heavy okay. regu heavy regulation of the yeah. private economy. Uh, so much devastation of the private economy. So much wealth, property, literally destroyed uh, by by war, major reconstruction efforts in so many parts of the world that hmm. the feeling was the the private economy could not be, private economic interests could not be trusted with the scale of the rebuilding process, whether in Britain or France or certainly Russia, um, which was committed to state planning, um, Japan, so in the first instance, instance, World War II made possible the triumph of a Keynesian political order. Uh, it's only in the 1970s when uh, some of the circumstances that have been set up at the end of World War II are no longer working economically that neoliberalism gets its chance to, to bid for power. So in the first instance, the, the consequence of World War II uh, is to uh, strengthen the regulation of capitalism by the state in the in the in the public interest. The scale of rebuilding the the devastation caused to private property at the heart of capitalism was was so extraordinary uh, that almost everywhere in the world there was agreement that governments had to get involved in the pro in the extraordinary project of reconstruction. And so that for that project. Keynesianism in so many parts of the world was seen as central. And if it was not, it was if it was not Keynesianism, it was communism. It was, you know, it was the expropriation of private property. That's that was the central project of the communist states that private economies could never work in the public interest and thus had to be taken over uh, by the government. So the two alternatives coming out of World War II were really. Keynesianism on the one hand, public management of the private economy and the public interest, or the communist socialist solution, direct ownership of the means of production by the government. Right. But do you also think that during the 60s, for instance, like you said, that there was uh, Keynesianism on one side and then there, of course, was uh, communism on the other, if one, one could say it that way. But do you really think that, you know, uh, uh, since there is uh, a lot of similarity in terms of how the private sector was either owned by uh, the governments or was 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 strongly regulated by the governments in the case of Keynesianism. But do you think that in terms of, you know, um, a, a more liberal democracy in the West, in terms of how, you know, politics was taking place, there was a major difference uh, in the 50s and in the 60s 
So talking before, you know, the 1970s, you know, uh, do you think that there was a major difference in terms of politics be between the communist and the capitalist world? Because there was, we, we saw that even in the 50s and the 60s, there was uh, an establishment of liberal democracy in the Western world. Yes, I, I don't mean to suggest that um, uh, that Keynesianism and communism were the same project by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Keynesianism was compatible with liberal democracy uh, communism is not. Uh, no. Communism is a, is a system of political tyranny, uh, and it fell because it was a system of 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 political tyranny. So there is a profound divide in the world. I do think, and I argue in my book uh, on the rise and fall of the neoliberal order, that the threat of communism um, inclined liberal democracies or powerful players in liberal democracies to compromise with the poor and the working classes of those countries in ways they might not otherwise have done. So what I mean by that is uh, uh, capital can be very aggressive, private industry can be very aggressive, especially in the United States in terms of, of getting what it wants. And one of the questions, you know, the state may be well-intentioned in terms of wanting to manage capitalism in the public interest. But one of the questions is, will capital tolerate that interference with its with its processes? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. um, and in many instances, American capital, American industry said, no, we won't tolerate government inter interference. But when the threat of communism loomed, which and what is the threat of communism? It's ultimately that capitalism is 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 ended. Right. It's the resources of private industry are taken over for per perpetuity by the state. That was the goal of communism. When that threat prevailed, the capitalist elites of the West operating in liberal democracies were more inclined to compromise with their domestic antagonists than otherwise would have been the case. They were willing to grant higher wage increases. They were willing to build to to grant more funds for welfare states uh, because they thought they had to win the hearts and minds of ordinary people, the poor and middle classes of those societies. And in order to win their hearts and minds, they had to give them a, a decent way of life. So as so that poor people in those countries would not be tempted by communism or a communist revolution. And in the 50s and 60s, and I'm sure this was, you know, I don't know the history of Pakistan intimately. Um, uh, I know somewhat more about the history of India, especially in India, the the power of the communist ideal, the power of the Soviet model was um, intense, right? That this this could be a way of organizing society. And I, we forget now what a what a powerful pull the communist ideal had on poor peoples of the world, especially in the global South. And America was was deeply aware of the appeal of communism to poor people in what was then called the third world. It's not, it's not a phrase we use anymore. The phrase global South has replaced the phrase the third world, but it was a powerful pull. And there was so much worry in the United States that these countries would, would go communist that uh, compromises were necessary on the part of 
capitalist elites in the West that they otherwise might not have been inclined to make. So I don't want to at all suggest that communism and liberal democracy were similar, but I do want to suggest that the threat of communism inclined economic crisis, uh, economic compromises to occur in these liberal democracies that otherwise might not have occurred. And that led to a greater redistribution of wealth and power from the rich to the poor during those 1950s and 60s. Uh, in Pakistan and India's case, Professor, both of them were making centralized economic plans in the 60s and 70s. Pakistan was, you know, experimenting with, you know, dictatorial sort of um, regimes in the in the 60s, um, but had a more sort of liberal economic order than India. India, on the other hand, was part of the non-aligned movement, uh, but it was sort of... Uh, one could say that economically aligned with communism, but all that while India had a more sort of liberal democratic outlook, uh, a more secular liberal democratic outlook when it came to politics, but its economy was very strongly regulated during the 50s and 60s, even more so than Pakistan's. So that's mm -hmm. the kind, that's, that's, that was the order of the day in, in South Asia at the time. Uh, my my uh, my next question to you, Professor, is uh, uh, about what Fukuyama says, and he says that uh, you know he he wrote in the early nineties that this is the ultimate triumph of uh, the liberal democracy, especially in the West. Do you really think that the fall of the Berlin Wall was was the ultimate uh, triumph of liberal democracy in the West? It was not the ultimate triumph because the ultimate triumph means the last triumph or the final triumph, right? And <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Fukuyama was right about one thing and he was wrong about one thing. <laughs> uh, and I used to be deeply critical of Fukuyama's um, claims of the, of the early 90s. Uh, what he understood was that the collapse of communism, not just as an actual socialist regime in the Soviet Union and elsewhere, but as an aspiration, as an ideal, uh, the, the notion that workers of the world could unite, take over, have their states take over the private economies in the interest of the working class and create a good society as an alternative to capitalism. The collapse of this, this had been I believe um, the most powerful idea in the world from the Russian revolution of 1917 until the collapse of communism in 1991. And it, it didn't matter whether you were communist or anti-communist, but every, just about everyone in the world had to choose which side they were on. And that's what I mean by the power of that uh, ideal. There was a non-aligned movement, as you said, with, with that India uh, tried to lead, uh, but the space for that was always small and and fragile and 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 difficult to maintain. And so, the collapse of this ideal, the collapse of this alternative, was enormously consequential. And what Fukuyama got right was his declaration that with the death of communism the last universal alternative to capitalism disappeared from the world. 
And here the crucial world, the crucial word is universal. It didn't mean there could not be sort of regional revolts against capitalism, say grounded in religion, say Islam or Christianity in various places. But there was no longer a universal alternative that all poor people in the world could look at and say, this is as universal a program as capitalism is, I choose communism. And so the disappearance of that possibility from the world was uh, an enormously important moment in, in, in world history and marked the, the very powerful triumph of, of capitalism. But I think where he got what he, where he was wrong is to, is to suggest that well his, history ended there he, and that's that was the title of his book the end of history because once this and the last man once this ideological battle was over history ended well Fukuyama is still alive he's probably not that much older than me and I he has walked back that claim and history of course did not end in. Um, at the early 1990s, nor do we think of that 30-year period since that time as the triumph of liberal democracy. Uh, we are living through now the crisis of liberal democracy and the appeal of authoritarianism in so many places in the world, global north, global south, east, west. Uh, the appeal of authoritarianism is almost everywhere in the in, in, in the world. And so it, even though one of the antagonists of liberal democracy was defeated decisively uh, in 1991, that being communism, the idea that it would have the world as its oyster and it would, there, would there would be no challenges to its rule and its triumph uh, was a very short-sighted notion. So in that respect, uh, uh, he was wrong. And we are in the midst of profound challenges to the continuation of liberal democracy in the world right now. History has most definitely not ended. We don't know yet what the shape of domestic and international politics in the 2030s, a decade from now, is going to look like. Everything right now is up for grabs. Professor, uh, we're time flew and we're rushing towards the end of the show. We're past 25 minutes already. I'll just pitch my last question to you. Um, so talking about, you know, Fukuyama's theory and whether it was the uh, end of history or not, Fukuyama wrote an article at the start of COVID saying that he now wants to sort of reconsider what he said in the early 90s, because the because the entire, because all countries in the world were looking at their governments uh, for, you know, health, immediate health relief. And he thought that governments were sort of brought back into the mainstream by COVID and that he thought was a challenge to, you know, the establishment, the sustenance of uh, liberal democracy in the world and, of course, of capitalism and so on and so forth. But there also have been talks about this Chinese authoritarianism and rise of China, which is also a competitor to this Western liberal democratic order. What do you what do you really think would be the uh, going forward would be the biggest sort of challenger to the Western liberal democratic order? Would it be China or would it be, you know, some sort of structural changes in the global economy that that could bring up uh, something as sort of transformative as COVID was? 
Well, I think the rise of China is certainly one of the um, fundamental developments of the last 30 years. Um, uh, all your listeners will know that China, everyone knows that China is going to be a major player in the world economy and the world political order, at least for the next 100 years and probably long beyond that. And that marks a real change in the arrangement of power uh, in, in, in the world. And, uh, uh, and China is, um, it claims it's communist. I don't really think it is, but it, it, in terms of its political organization, I would call it Leninist, you know, heavily sent centralized state direction of everything except what it chooses to relinquish, uh, but in no sense, a democracy and certainly not De developing in uh in in that direction yeah. uh the um i would say that the the world as a whole is is at an inflection point that the neoliberal order has the power the authority of neoliberalism has fractured that didn't begin with covid uh, it started with the global financial crisis of 2008 2009 yeah, yeah. uh and uh that generated um, uh, economic, a lot of economic devastation and uh, a lot of people no longer believing that free markets were the way to prosperity or promised a, a route of opportunity for the peoples of the world. Uh, and in the 15 years since that time, uh, we have seen uh, a rehabilitation of interest in government regulating economies in the public interest that a, a general acknowledgement that capitalism can not be left to its own devices it can't handle the challenge of covid it can't handle the challenge of climate yeah it also can't handle the challenge of inequality frankly between uh between rich and poor and i think the biggest quest and and so the 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 pandemic and also the war in Ukraine is also uh, between Russia and Ukraine has also caused a lot of fundamental rethinking about the relationship of states to markets. It used to be thought whatever a country needed in the world, let markets and private actors procure it. If Pakistan needed a commodity, if it needed food, petroleum, rare minerals, let private actors procure them. And this was the ideology of neoliberalism. Uh, and they would deliver the, you know, the 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 best deal possible, the most ample supply of that commodity for the cheapest price. Didn't matter where it came from because transportation was cheap, cheap. Didn't matter what country it came from because everyone was involved in the global economy. Well, the global economy doesn't operate the way it used to as a result of the pandemic or the Ukraine-Russia war. And uh, countries have woken up to the fact that they might no longer have access to essential goods that their people need, food, petroleum, rare minerals. So every government in the world is now asking what commodities do our people absolutely need and can they not do without? And what steps do we as a government have to take to ensure the continued availability of those goods for our people? Once a government, government, government,